When you read the book of Acts, you can't help but think, why isn't the church today like that? Well, maybe it can, and maybe it should. Hi, my name is Terence, and I'm your host for Reading and Readers, a podcast where I review Christian books for you. Today, I review the book of Acts, a commentary by C. Peter Wagner, 526 pages published by Regal Publishers in 2008. It's available in Amazon Kindle for $16.99, but it was available for free uh, some time ago via Logos.com. C. Peter Wagner was a Fuller Theological Seminary professor specializing in missiology, which is a study of missions. He became famous or infamous, depending on your position, for the New Apostolic Reformation, NAR, a term that he coined. Peter Wagner and the New Apostolic Reformation are big topics that go beyond the scope of today's book review. My review is focused on what he writes in this book, but first, I should explain my personal relationship with uh, today's book. Fifteen years ago, I read this book and my eyes were open. At that time, I had just become a Christian, having a uh, place my skepticism, my earlier skepticism about uh, religion aside. To my amazement, I came to believe that Christ walked on water. Christ raised the dead. Christ was crucified. He was resurrected on the third day, ascended, and one day Christ will return. So I suddenly became a believer in the supernatural. And in those early days of my coming to faith, I read this book, and wow, I was electrified. Who said the Bible was boring? Not the way Wagner tells it. I mean, you have spiritual warfare, gods and demons. And and he tells us that what was true for Paul and the apostles then is still true for us today. And I can still remember the thrill of knowing all these new things. That was... 15 years ago, and a lot has happened since. For one, I have read the Bible cover to cover more than once. I have read more Christian books after Wagner's. I have listened to more sermons, and I have engaged in many great conversations on the biggest questions of the faith and trying to understand how to, how to research, interpret, and convey um, these uh, uh, tough Uh, answers uh, to tough questions. And one of the things I discovered uh, was that, um, well, for one thing, back then I had no opinion on the New Apostolic Reformation. Now I do. So (laughs) as I review this book, I know that some Christians love this book. Uh, I do know, and uh, many treasure the life and ministry of Peter Wagner, who had passed away in October 2016. I can somewhat understand the person's enthusiasm, the people's enthusiasm, because I had a taste of it 15 years ago. And uh, I take today's review, today's book review, as a sign of how far I have come, and also as a wonder how I was so taken in by Peter Wagner's book. 
With that, let's now turn to the book of Acts, a commentary by C. Peter Wagner. Chapter 1 is titled, God's Training Manual for Modern Christians. Here, Wagner makes the case that the key verse to understand the book of Acts is found in chapter 1, verse 8, which reads, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And uh, in this question, uh, tracing from this Acts uh, 1, verse 8, he also poses the question, There are 1,398 commentaries on Acts. What will mine offer? So that was Peter Wagner's question, which he poses to the readers. And he answers it by saying that, um, I quote, It is in these two areas, power ministry and missiology, that I feel I can make enough of a contribution to justify adding yet another commentary on Acts to our library shelves. I bring a degree of expertise in these areas that few of the biblical scholars who have produced the classical works on Acts could provide. In doing so, I have no illusions of grandeur. The classical works have a well-deserved reputation as classics. End quote. So, um, in answering um, that question, he is basically drawing upon Acts chapter 1, verse 8, uh, receive power, be witnesses. So, um, that is the, the main theme of today's book. As a missiologist, okay, a person who studies missions, Wagner brings out the cultural aspects that we may not fully appreciate in our first reading of the book of Acts. For example, in Acts chapter 6, when we read how the Hellenist uh, Jews raise a complaint against the Hebrew Jews, okay, so they are two different cultures, Hellenistic and Hebrew, um, at first we we don't know what it means um, to be Hellenistic and so on. Now, Wagner in this book helpfully informs us of the historical and cultural background so that we can fully appreciate the underlying tension that exists between the two groups. The same way you would think about Samaria and uh, Israel or the, the Jews in uh, Jerusalem. So understanding the background a bit more uh, helps us to become more sensitive, more aware um, of how culture how culture impacts our evangelistic efforts. And um, another thing that he, he does, which uh, is the power ministry. So he is very focused on that in this book. Pa uh, Wagner writes, I quote, How do we know that the kingdom of God is authentically among us? One way is to see healings and demonic deliverances as part of the ongoing ministry of the church. End quote. Now, even the most hardened cessationist, okay, a person who believes that the sensational acts of the apostles have ceased, even they would give pause, as Wagner brings out passage after passage of signs and wonders, miracles and healings. And he invites us, right, rightly, to, to praise God for these glorious events. These are all glorious events uh, in Acts. And, and rightly, okay, rightly, um, no Christian should be dismissed for wondering, why is it that our Christian life today so little resemble the days of the apostles? But it can, and it does. And that is Wagner's exhortation throughout the book. 
What you read in Acts, the healing, the deliverances, the power and authority of these spiritual encounters, they are still happening. They are happening in Latin America. They are happening in China. It's happening, it's expanding, and you can be part of it too. So that is what uh, Peter Wagner has set out to do in this commentary, emphasize the two themes, uh, power, ministry, and missions, and he does it with style. He takes passages that we would just read through without a second thought and makes us see something that we have never seen before, we have never thought before. To take a trivial, let's start with a trivial and deliciously enticing example, Wagner's comment on Acts 16 includes these words, I quote, after many exciting events in Philippi, which we will see in detail shortly, the last place we find the missionaries, Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, is in the house of Lydia, where they had been lodged. But when they leave Philippi, the we suddenly changes to they. Luke obviously had stayed behind. Did he stay lodged in Lydia's house? Could they have decided to marry each other? and help form the nucleus of that wonderful church in Philippi that later sent substantial financial gifts to Paul and his missionary team. End quote. I bet you have never even considered that possibility of Luke and Lydia getting married. And you can almost imagine the storyteller's eye twinkle and giving you a massive grin. Now, just to be clear, Wagner doesn't make a big deal out of Luke's single or married status. But he did say, and I agree, that it is a charming way to remind readers that the people we read about, Paul, Luke, Lydia, were flesh and blood men and women much like we are. And Wagner has a great imagination. And imagination is a good thing for Bible readers, for that gets us into the drama of the dogma. Because if we have a lack of imagination, I doubt that we can be moved by what Christ has done on the cross, the passion of Christ, and so on. The thing is that uh, Wagner takes imagination too far. The phrase, it could have been, occurs 43 times in the 24 chapters of this book. He says something, it could have been this, it could have been that, and it might have been this. Now, if those could-have-beens were limited to artistic license, meaning they were suggestions to invoke wonder, and they are nothing to be taken seriously, it would be okay. But that's not the way Wagner does it. Now, consider the theme, or the heart of the book, the two themes that he draws from Acts 1.8, namely power ministry and missiology. Okay? Look, I appreciate how Wagner brings his expertise uh, in missiology, the study of missions, to bring out the cultural aspects we find in Acts. But he has allowed his expertise to bring his interpretations into the realm of fantasy or historical fiction. It starts out innocently enough. Remember the Hellenistic and the Hebrew Jews in Acts 6? The common understanding is that the apostles appointed Stephen and the other Hellenistic Jews to minister to the widow, and all ends well. Everybody stayed together, everybody was in harmony, they prayed, they rejoiced, all good. Right? Wagner, Wagner writes, as a concluding statement to this uh, whole 
whole episode. Although the term church split is harsher than Luke would use, this passage is an account of the first major church split. End quote. Now to Wagner, this is a good church split. It is a harmonious one according to the will of God. Stephen and the Hellenistic believers are, are by, by the apostles' appointment, they are now separate from the apostles. They have control over their own finances. They are free to minister to their own Hellenistic culture. And how, where did Wagner get this idea from? And uh, he justifies this church split idea from the word deacon. Uh, uh, it is one of his main points. He names scholars like Derek Titball, John Stott, Hans Konzerman, who each say that what Stephen and his friends did is far more than just waiting at tables. At this point, I did something which I did not do 15 years ago. I looked up the references. Now, sadly, two of the references were not available as ebooks, so I couldn't get them with a click of the button. But I do have John Stott's commentary on Acts. Without going into the details, John Stott does not agree with Wagner's conclusion. In John Stott's commentary, the church is still one church, and the deacons were still under the authority of the apostles, which is contrary to what uh, Wagner would put it. He says there are basically two churches. Wagner, throughout the book, has a tendency to read his own experiences of multicultural missions, okay, the tensions that exist as we have culture-to-culture culture, uh, evangelism. So he brings all his experiences into the biblical text, into his commentary on Acts, such that he exaggerates he, yeah, he exaggerates the tensions between cultures such that in some cases it can only be reconciled with a split or you do your thing, I do my thing because our cultures are just simply too, such a barrier. Um, so we need to do it this way. And he, he then makes the, he then draws the lesson, okay, that the biblical way to do missions is to, above all else, to establish indigenous leaders to lead their own church. Because only then can you have rapid growth because you have people evangelizing to people who look like them, talk like them, uh, and, and are like them. Okay? So that is monocultural. That is a term he uses in the book. And while that is certainly a desire of every missionary to appoint indigenous leaders to lead their own church, is that really what happened in Jerusalem between the apostles and Stephen's friends? And it doesn't stop at Jerusalem. Consider the church at Antioch in Acts 13. Now let me read from Acts 13, verse 1 to 3. I quote, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, uh, Lucius of Cyrene, Manain, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. End quote. Do you detect any tension in Antioch from what I just read? Well, I don't think so. Would you describe that church as a united church? 
you might even wonder why am I even suggesting that they it was not uh, united. You will note that there are foreigners named in the list. You have Lucius, you have uh, Simeon, and uh, so Barnabas is probably from Cyprus. So there are so there are foreigners. Okay, there are some foreigners there, and uh, we could use our imagination. To, to imagine how the foreigners would work in this church as uh, teachers and prophets. And maybe you could imagine something like how your church functions. Okay, So you have everyone, rich, poor, young, old, men, women, uh, black, white, and every color in between from out of state, overseas, uh, local, and so on. They're all coming together. And they're all coming together and they are coming to bless um, the church's mission team before the team goes off. And in that setting, there is a good chance someone will actually say that we are doing the same thing, the very same thing that the church in Antioch did when they sent off Paul and Barnabas. You have a melting pot of, of no barriers. There's no war between uh, Jew and Gentile, men and women, master and slave. Everybody was just together sending off a missionary team. Except according to Wagner, that's not what happened. The listing of foreigners in the passage gets Wagner to I say, wildly speculate. He imagines that these uh, foreign missionaries serve in the Cyprus and Cyrene mission, or CCM for short. He insists that um, two different cultures in, would not be able to function in the same church or in the same mission organization. He writes, okay, this is not my words, this is what he writes. Uh, it is inaccurate to say, as many attempt to do, that Paul and Barnabas were sent out by the church at Antioch. He insists that uh, it is actually a parachurch, the CCM, that sent them off. And he does write in detail, but we won't go into that. My conclusion was that he speculates too much, and from that speculation, he then draws lessons uh, for how the church should function as uh, in evangelism, which I think is very, very flawed because the premise is flawed. Now, enough about culture. Even though there's a lot more things I can say, let's, let's hear what Wagner has to say about the other big theme of his book, power ministry. And we should say, we must hear what he says because God told him to say it. In an earlier chapter, when he com comments on God commissioning Paul, Wagner writes, I quote, I myself can testify that receiving such commissioning words as these directly from Jesus brings powerful spiritual sustenance later on, especially when difficult times arise. Jesus told Paul how many things he must suffer for my name's sake, um, Acts 9.16. In 1989, at the massive Lausanne uh, Second Congress on World Evangelization in Manila, Philippines, God spoke to me in as clear, although less dramatic, a way as he spoke to Paul. He said, I want you to take international leadership in the field of territorial spirits. End quote. I want to say up front that uh, I don't believe Wagner, Peter Wagner is saying, Thus says the Lord, this is what God says about spiritual warfare. I don't think he means for any of his words or works to carry um, a Holy Spirit-inspired uh, level 
of authority. But I also want to say that by making such a big claim of God speaking to him and commissioning him, that it is not easy for Christians who aim to be faithful to what the Lord says to ignore Wagner. You make such a big claim, um, much less to uh, question him. And question him, I must question him, I will. Wagner, let's, let's um, give uh, an example. Okay, so Wagner says, okay, Wagner says that uh, Paul failed in Athens because there were so many idols there. He writes, I quote, I believe that Paul's experience in Athens, though far from a success, far from a success in evangelism and church planting would have been a valuable learning experience for him and by application for us as well. Paul learned important lessons about one, the, the awesome power of the enemy, and two, missionary methodology. None of the commentators I have checked raises the question of whether demonic, the demonic powers behind the idols and the festivals and the sacrifices in Athens could have been strong enough to frustrate Paul's evangelistic intentions in the city. I personally believe they could have been, and they probably were more than Paul could handle. Now listen to this. This is reminiscence of Jesus' ministry in his hometown of Nazareth. It is said, he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Matthew 13 verse 58. Neither Jesus nor Paul did anything particularly wrong. They simply encountered powers that, at that particular time, were fortified enough to hold their position and to prevent the fullest penetration of the kingdom of God. End quote. Oh boy, I am so upset by the suggestion that Jesus was able to banish legion. Uh, Jesus was able to, who is the ruler of all, the king of kings. I mean, he is, uh, there, is no, there is no spirit that could actually go against Jesus in, in the whole gospel stories. And there is no gospel writer who attempts to say that uh, Jesus was too weak to actually banish any um, evil spirits. But um, that is what Wagner says. But, but this is a throwaway statement from Wagner. He does not elaborate. So I should not spend time here. But the fact is that he doesn't substantiate this. He just throws a remark like that without feeling the need to defend it. And this just shows to me how he plays fast and loose with uh, basic doctrine. He has thrown the king of kings out of the window in order to fit his spiritual warfare narrative, which often goes beyond what the Bible says. It is often informed by what he witnesses in his missionary journeys, mission team, I would say, not missionary journeys, but when he does all this missiology work, research, and he talks to people who see things, who observe things, who witness to spiritual warfare. And therefore, he just puts all this data together. And then, therefore, it makes sense to say that Jesus was not strong enough to banish the demons because the demons at the time was too strong for Jesus. <sighs> so anyway, that's not even my main point. Um, according to Wagner, Athens is a failure because the evil powers were simply too strong. Then Paul goes to Corinth. And he succeeds there. Wagner lists the differences between Athens, where he failed, and Corinth, where he 
uh, Saul's success. And he also points to Acts 17 verse 16 to give um, some uh, justification for this. He, uh, and Acts 17 16 says that Paul's spirit was provoked within him when he saw the city, which was Athens, given over to idols. It was just so full of idols. Paul said so, so therefore um, Athens was just too powerful. And Wagner even writes this, okay? I quote, even a novice spiritual mapper, okay, that's a job description, uh, that's a role, a spiritual mapper, in the first century would have been able to recognize that darkness lingered over Athens more than either Berea, Paul's previous stop, or here in Corinth. So Corinth is a success because the evil powers there were weak. Okay, then uh, Paul next, uh, sometime later, many chapters later, Paul goes to Rome. So what does he say about the, the spiritual map of uh, Rome? He doesn't say much at all. In fact, Wagner describes the strong Christian presence in Rome. He writes, How many house churches might have been located in Rome by this time, we have no way of knowing exactly. But it is likely there were quite a few. In the epistles that Paul wrote to these Roman believers a few years previously, he mentioned some house churches by name, end quote. Wagner describes Rome as known for its extraordinary political power over a large part of the world. And now this gets to, gets to my spiritual warfare question. Wagner says that in spiritual warfare, just as in normal swords and shields warfare, victory is won by the stronger army. So the Apostle Paul failed in Athens because the evil powers were too strong. The Apostle Paul succeeded in Corinth because the evil powers were too weak. Then my question is this, how is it that a bunch of no-name Christians, which by no name suggests people without apostolic authority, which to Wagner is a really, really big deal, apostolic authority, how is it that these guys could have succeeded in establishing house churches in the very center of imperial religion? I mean, it just doesn't make sense. And Wagner does not explain, he does not even see Rome as the counter-argument to his thesis. And speaking of thesis, the central thesis of this book is flawed. It is in question. Early in the book, Wagner asserts that the theme of Acts is seen in Acts 1.8. Let me remind you of what it says. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And right after saying this, Wagner writes, Very simply, in Jesus' last recorded words spoken on this earth, Jesus highlights two themes, power ministries and missiology. Now that, now that to me seems like an unshakable fact. Jesus did say so, and from the verse, it seems to convey what Wagner says, which is that uh, Jesus was looking at power ministries and missiology as what the disciples would be doing for the rest of time while, he is, while Jesus is away. And that would mean including us. So they, there are a lot of things at stake actually over here with uh, this interpretation. Now, Wagner then does the most peculiar thing in this book. He skips over a third of Acts, and he knows it. I quote, According to my calculations, I am devoting only 8%, 8% of my full commentary on Acts to chapters 20 to 28, which in turn comprise 32% of Luke's original work. Wow! You just 
skip 32%. And he explains, he explains a few times, but I'll, I'll read one of them. He explains why as follows. I quote, Five years pass from the time Paul is arrested in Jerusalem to the end of the book of Acts. In the seven and one half chapters, Luke uses to tell of this experience, about again 27% of Acts, explicit accounts of power ministries are few and far between in comparison to the other three-fourths of the book. End quote. So Wagner's commentary on Acts is short on the last seven and a half chapters of Acts because it has too few power ministries. Now what does this tell us about the the thesis of this commentary that the that acts is about power ministry. So does Acts 1.8 accurately describe the central theme of Acts or not? Because how can the central theme not fit with the last 32% of the book? Okay, so that's one problem. But let's just say that the central theme is correct, okay? That Acts 1.8 is indeed the, the key verse for the whole book. Because why? It was the last recorded words of Jesus, okay? And let's, let, let me read it again, okay? Just, just so to convince you. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth, end quote. So you shall be witnesses... From, uh, in Jerusalem to the end of the earth, does fit with missiology, with missions. And I think even just closing your eyes, just thinking about what the book of Acts is, you would agree that it is about missions. But let's now relook at what it means to receive power. Wagner understands Holy Spirit power to mean signs and wonders, miracles and healings, angels and demons. I put to you that the power of the Holy Spirit also includes the power to preach. Now, Wagner does not give Paul much credit for his Mars Hill sermon. He calls it a failure. Actually, I got it wrong. Wagner gives the... It's not that Wagner doesn't give Paul credit. Um, Wagner gives the Holy Spirit no credit, okay? Wagner puts it like this, okay? Let me, let me just read what Wagner writes. In Athens, Paul displayed brilliance in human wisdom. In Corinth, he ministered with public displays of supernatural power. That is the difference. In Athens, it is human wisdom, not Holy Spirit work. In Corinth, it is supernatural power. And that, that doesn't convince you. That is another thing. Oh, Wagner doesn't give the time of the day for Paul's defense in his trials. Very short, goes through them very, very quickly. He simply does not see Holy Spirit power in Paul's defense in his trials. After all, nothing miraculous happened. That's not true, because if you remember what Jesus said in Luke 12, verse 11 to 12, let me read. When you are brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about how you would defend yourselves or what you would say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. Now, if, if we take Jesus' word as true, then instead of seeing Athens as a failure, as Wagner sees it, it should be seen as Holy Spirit working through Paul to speak before all these people, isn't it? And also to the, the, in the trial. So, and how do I know that all these things are true? Because the Holy Spirit told me. Now, Wagner claims that God spoke to him. I too say that God speaks to me. And I'll tell you now that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. The Holy Spirit speaks through the Word. And this is what the Word says in Acts 17 verse 11. Now these Jews in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica, 
they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Now, the Holy Bible clearly commands believers to refer to such scripture, examining scripture, to see if what is taught by others are true. So when I say that the Holy Spirit speaks to me, I'm also saying that the Holy Spirit speaks to you through illumination of the Bible. So if if you don't believe what I say about uh, this uh, uh, Peter Wagner's commentary, read the Bible, read Acts. And I put to you, if you read through Acts, and if you consider that power from the Holy Spirit includes signs and wonders, yes, but it also includes the spiritual power to teach and receive the word, okay? If you, if you put this in mind, you will conclude, as many Christians have, that we to live in the days of the apostles, that it is a miracle when the preaching of the word leads to regeneration and conversion, justification, uh, sanctification, glorification. So we should not feel shortchanged when we read the book of Acts. We should instead feel the power of the word of God making changes to people's lives as you read through the book of Acts. So that is, that is the way I have changed my mind on, on how I, I interpret Acts. So uh, in conclusion, because this is going uh, far too long, if you're looking for a book that takes the book of Acts as a source material for it could have been, okay, it could have been this, it could have been that, it's a speculative um, nonfiction, <laughs> maybe, then Wagner's commentary is one of a kind. Okay, so... You can read it and you judge for yourself. There are definitely things that Wagner is, is correct. Okay, so many things on his background, the cultural, historical backgrounds, and so on. There are many things that he gets it correct. And he is also very clear that he is not the, the um, he believes in the justification, so he's not into the new perspective of Paul. And neither does he take in the, the wealth and health gospel because he says that suffering is actually part of the Christian life. So there are things that he, he says that are right. That's not the problem. The problem is that um, he overreaches. Okay, The best I can say of Wagner's commentary is that it makes vivid the reality of spiritual warfare and intercultural missions. Okay, That is his focus. And, and whenever he says things that are validated by the Bible, it's, it's good. All right? But he too often strays away from what the Bible says and he brings in his experiences and interprets the Bible from experience, which it's not, may not be true, <laughs> but he insists they are. So that is the problem and that is why I have changed my opinion of, uh, of um, this book and I hope that... Uh, Again, if you, if you would want to gain, please read the Bible. <laughs> this is a reading and reader's review of the Book of Acts, a commentary by C. Peter Wagner, 526 pages, published by Regal Publishers in 2008. It's available in Amazon Kindle and Logos.com. And speaking of Logos.com, they have another free commentary for this month, and it's the NIV application commentary. Uh, on the Letters of John by Gary M. Birch. In 
And I'll just quote one thing over here before I end. All right, just one thing, just one tiny thing. In Burgess' comments on 1 John, he writes, the problems in the church in John's time are essentially pneumatic. They stem from prophets who, under the alleged inspiration of the Spirit, are teaching false things. John's first response when faced with such teachings is to train his followers that theology must be anchored objectively or else it will be shaped by any whim or inspiration. End quote. No prizes for which commentary I actually recommend. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>